I found it a remarkable thing this last week when the first instinct of the nation upon hearing the news of DeMar Hamlin when he collapsed in the game on Monday night to go to prayer. If you're not familiar with the story, DeMar Hamlin plays for the Buffalo Bills. Um, probably had to be under a rock this week to not notice it in the news. But the reality is a 24-year-old player gets hit in the chest, has cardiac arrest, collapses on the field. His teammates and the opposing team lost it. Emotionally, they couldn't believe what they were seeing. They're trying to resuscitate a 24-year-old on the field. The remarkable thing was how quickly everybody went to prayer. Now, stunningly, Lori and I were watching television that evening, and we were watching another show, and my phone started blowing up. And so I said, I got to change the channel. She said, what's going on? I said, I just got to go over to ESPN. So I clicked it on and saw what you many saw unfolding on the screen. And I started watching in the stadiums and the individuals who were bowing in prayer. So out of curiosity, I just started going to the news feeds. I wanted to see what were the national news broadcasters doing. And they all cut away from their programming and they went right to the game. Now, interestingly enough, <laughs> many of the news agencies didn't know what to do with it. And, and some, and I won't mention them by name, but they said, oh, isn't that cute? They're gathered in a circle in support of him. No, that wasn't what was going on. Okay, they were praying to God. So DeMar Hamlin has collapsed on the field. He's had a heart attack. They don't know if he's going to live. The first instinct is to go to prayer, and God comes to the forefront when things go awry. And it results in questions, questions filtering through my office, as you can imagine. Many times when events like this happen, I hear from a lot of people. And many times it comes across this way. Where's God? Where's God when children are dying in the streets of the Ukraine? Where's God when four college students are massacred? Where's God when an 80-year-old woman has to go back to work because the economy is in free fall? Where's God when a young mom is diagnosed with cancer? The individuals want to know. They want to know, where is God in those situations? Now, those who know, they know. And they bow the knee and they go to prayer. And even if they're on a football field before a national audience, they don't care. They know who to go to for the answer. It's very easy to answer that question. And we do this in church world a lot. We give the easy answer. And the easy answer to the world who's watching is to point to the evident fact that evil is real, sin and decay is real. And so we live with a fallen world. And therefore, that becomes the pat answer. That's not a very satisfying answer to people who are not church people. It's much more complex. And actually, there's a twofold component to that. Evil is real. Sin and decay are real. There's an actual, tangible presence of evil on this planet. Satan is afoot. But conversely, the opposite side of that is God is sovereign. And he's on his throne, and he controls everything. If that's new to you, you need to know that if God is not sovereign and not on his throne, we have a much bigger issue than 24-year-olds collapsing on the football field or economies that go in free fall. God is on his throne, 
Yet his ways are not always our ways, and he points that out himself. Look with me on the screen, Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your, your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And that's all simply saying God does things differently than what you and I would do if we were on the throne. There's a vast difference in objectives. Therefore, to us, when we're observing tragedy, things are mysterious. How could God possibly be at work in that? Because of this vast difference in objectives. And that aspect alone confuses people when they're asking for God answers. They're searching and they really want to know in the midst of their trials. Hear this in the spirit I intend it as though God owes us an answer. Job wrestled with this very clear reality. If you're not familiar with Job's story, I encourage you to read it later today. You look it up in the Old Testament of the Bible, you're gonna think it's Job, J-O-B. His name is Job, and he's got an amazing story, but this is his response when he's going through really hard times, chapter 23, verse eight. Oh, that I knew knew where I might find him, speaking of God, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn the words which he would answer and perceive what he would say to me. Verse 8, but I cannot perceive him. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. He turns on the right, I cannot see him. And you read the story of Job, you find there is genuine desperation. He's not just calling God to account. He wants to know, how long do I have to go through this? Why is it going this way? I don't think he did it in disrespect whatsoever. He did it in the way that we would do it. We we want to know. Job doesn't like it when God shows up. Chapter 40. Brace yourself like a man and stand up, for I will question you and you will answer me. Where were you when I formed the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you are so wise. To which Job cowers and backs off and says, sorry, shouldn't have said it, I'm wrong. 1950s, 1955. A.W. Tozer wrote the book called The Root of Righteousness. It set the theological world back a little bit because he posed a really interesting thought. Let me show you his quote. It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Drink that in, church. Understand the context of why A.W. Tozer wrote that in The Root of Righteousness. Indulge me for just a moment. Let me pull an excerpt out of that book. Here's a paragraph. The flaming desire to be rid of every unholy thing and to put on the likeness of Christ at any cost is not often found among us. We expect to enter the everlasting kingdom of our Father and to sit down around the table with sages, saints, and martyrs. And through the grace of God, maybe we shall. Yes, maybe we shall. But for the most of us, it could prove at first an embarrassing experience. Ours might be the silence of the untried soldier in the presence of the battle-hardened heroes who have fought the fight and won the victory and who have the scars to prove that they were present when the battle was joined. 
Is Tozer correct in his premise because he went on to say, it's very unlikely that God can use someone greatly unless He's hurt them deeply. Is He correct in His premise? You may disagree with Him, but of those who see truth in His statement, many who are Christ followers would step back and say, if that's what's required to be used of God, I'd rather not. Thank you. But I would have to push back and say, well, can you really call Him Lord of your life then? Because if God directs your steps and He's Lord of your life, He may bring you to things that you don't want to go through in order for Him to shape you, to make you into the likeness of what He wants to make you into. As we've seen in the life of Joseph, God has allowed deep trials to shape Him for future kingdom work. If you haven't been part of the story, here it is in just a, a nutshell, 30 seconds. Joseph is 17 years old. He's one of 12 sons. His dad is Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So he's going to be part of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he has dreams. As a 17-year-old, he tells his social circle, his brothers, about his dream, which includes them bowing down to him in the future. They don't want to hear that. Then he tells his mom and dad the same dream. They don't want to hear it. But he keeps the dream to himself. He interprets the dream as though they're going to bow down to him one day. As a result, his brothers take him hostage and they sell him into the slave trade and he's hauled away into Egypt. Interestingly, that very same ability, that capacity to interpret dreams that got him in trouble with his brothers is the same, same thing that propels him to the court of Pharaoh, which is what you're going to see today. Genesis chapter 41, verse 1, now it happened at the end of two full years. Now, as you can imagine, life in the dungeon for those two full years are long, dull, monotonous, and it does not matter if you're second in command in the dungeon, you're still in the dungeon. He's second in command, but he's still in the, the dungeon, he's still in the jail, and those months turn into years, and there's nothing but waiting. And many of you can identify with that this morning because that's what it's like when you're in God's waiting room. It seems like every day is the same. It seems like nothing is going to change and like nothing is happening around you. But in reality, God is at work. He's at work all the time around us. Lori and I together have walked through personal hard experiences. We know what it is to go through deep water. What I found through Scripture and through our experiences going through those is that Jesus becomes more real to you during those trench times. We discover in the midst of the testing and in the midst of the waiting that it is common that as God's people go through the testing and waiting, that He's shaping and He's perfecting. Just consider Noah. He waited 120 years for it to rain. Meantime, he's doing exactly what God told him to do. Moses didn't lead the Exodus till he's 80 years old. Paul, three years after he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, he's in Arabia during those three years in the wilderness before three years go by, then he gets to start representing Christ. But he's in the wilderness during that time. So even though it seems like things are dragging, we're reminded by Jesus himself, he's always at work. Look with me at John 5, 17. Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. So after two more years, Joseph experiences this turning point. On a day that seems like any other day, 
The sun comes up like every other morning. The dawn is new, but it's just another dungeon day for him, except for one thing that Joseph knows nothing about. Pharaoh has had a really bad night because he had a horrible dream. Go with me to verse 1. Now, it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he was standing by the Nile. And lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt, and they stood up by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly and the gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke. I guess so. Who wants to see that? So Pharaoh's been dreaming about Egypt's future, and as a result, Joseph's life is about to take an immediate turn. And if any story in Scripture reveals the sovereignty of God and that he's on the throne and that he's in control, it's right here. It's this story. The very first thing that we notice about Pharaoh is that he's standing by the side of the Nile River. What do we know about the Nile even to this day? It is the source of life for the people of Egypt because they don't have hardly any rainfall whatsoever. So we find in verse 2, he dreams about this, seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed. Sleek, there's a word that's in your notes this morning, Hebrew word, yafeh, and it really just means beautiful, beautiful cows. You've driven through the country and you've probably seen a herd maybe of black Angus cows out in the pasture. If if they're well-fed and they're content, there's a very peaceful scene in front of your eyes and they are beautiful. There's something just remarkable about them. But in Pharaoh's night terror, verse 4 describes something out of a Stephen King horror novel because you've got these cannibal flesh-eating cows that are coming up and eating them. And so he wakes up thinking he's got to lay off the pepperoni on his pizza. What in the world? And then he goes back to sleep. Now, let me remind you before we go to verse 5. When you find in Scripture a dream being repeated twice, we're told in Scripture that that's because God has settled it. It's determined and it's going to happen. Verse 5, he fell asleep and dreamed a second time and behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke and behold, it was a dream. So these seven ears that have been blasted by this east wind, it's a shadaf, and a, a shadaf is another word that's in your notes, and this is the wind that's even talked about today. It continues on. It's a scorching, hot east wind, and this dream reveals it's going to take place for seven years of this scorching heat that's going to come across them. So this high, dry wind is spoken of in Hosea. Hosea 13.5, an east wind will come, the shadaf, the wind of the Lord coming up from the wilderness. When you find it mentioned in the Bible, it's referring to God delivering judgment. He's already made a decision about how He's going to pronounce and deliver judgment. Now, just speaking for us today in the present day world in 2022, 2023, excuse me, brand new year. Man, I'm going to write checks wrong for a long time. If you had two dreams of this magnitude in the same night, Would it not get your attention? Would it not cause you to say, what in the world is going on? Now we find in the next verse, verse 8, now in the morning his spirit was troubled. So he sent and called for the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. 
So his spirit is troubled, it says there, and the Hebrew captures it really well when it says his heart is like this. It's agitated, it's pounding. The actual word that's used there represents pounding. So he's mentally distressed and he's physically distressed because his blood pressure is going through the roof. And he doesn't know what to do with this and he knows it's more than bad food. And we know that this dream came from God and the dream has exactly the effect that God wants it to have. He got Pharaoh's attention. And now Pharaoh's gotta do something with the information. So he calls in all the magi, just like the magi you see in the Christmas story in the New Testament. He calls in the magi and the wise men, and there are two different groups here, two different specific groups in Egypt. The the magi were specialized in interpreting sacred writings, and these are the individuals who studied the stars. But the wise men group, they were the individuals who studied the hieroglyphics of Egypt. And they would be the counselors to Pharaoh. But as wise as they are, they cannot tell Pharaoh what his dreams mean. Now, from our vantage point, we have the benefit of history. We can look back and read the story, and we know how it all fits together. But for them, they're absolutely confounded by what this is. We can see all the elements. But note this, it's it's the actual simplicity of the dream which really conceals the depth of it. Maybe you noticed that as I was reading that, that the word behold was used five times in one paragraph. Behold, as it's used in the Bible, is like this. Pay attention. That's why the word behold is in there. Because of the intensity of what's about to unfold. It's something that's going to happen in a rapid sequence. Verse 9, then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Just pause there for a second. If you haven't been part of the story, remember, he's the lead butler. And the lead butler or the chief cupbearer is always the counselor to the king. And we discovered in our story back in November that he had been thrown in the dungeon with Joseph and met Joseph. And Joseph entered into an agreement with him that he interpreted his dream, but he asked him to tell Pharaoh that he was in there without purpose, and he needed to be freed from the dungeon, but the cupbearer forgot about him. So he says, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servants, and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, that's the dungeon, both me and the chief baker. We had a dream on the same night. He and I, each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now a Hebrew youth was there with us a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related them to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one he interpreted according to his own dream, verse 13, and just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. Speaking of Pharaoh now, he restored me in my office, but he hanged him. So he steps back in time and he relates his own dungeon experience. I've been there. I have some degree of fault, but more importantly, I remember a guy by the name of Joseph, and he did an interpretation for us, and what he says next is that interpretation stood the test of time. Exactly what he said was going to happen is precisely what happened, and here's church where I want you to see for the first time the sovereign nature of God that is in this story. The one who knows and controls the end from the beginning. So you notice this. 
The cupbearer's neglect of Joseph in the dungeon works really intricately into God's plan because at the perfect moment, he remembers, oh yeah, there's that guy, he's young, he's in the dungeon, he's probably there right now, and he interpreted my dreams. Now check that against this reality. If you know anything about history, you know Pharaoh is the most powerful person in the ancient world, certainly the most powerful person in all of Egypt. Maybe you didn't know, he's the most powerful person for three reasons, financially, politically, and religiously. See, Pharaoh holds multiple titles. He's called the Lord of the two lands, and he's called the high priest of every temple. So as the Lord of the two lands, he's the Lord over the upper region of Egypt, the Nile Delta, and the lower region of Egypt and everything that they oversee. But he's also the high priest of every temple. So as the Lord of two lands, he owns all the lands. You living at that time wouldn't have any property that belonged to you. It all belongs to Pharaoh. He made all the laws. He collected all the taxes. But he also had the responsibility to defend against foreign invaders. As the high priest of every temple, he represents the gods on earth, small g. And he leads people in worship. And he builds temples and he leads them in rituals. Verse 14, then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Now those aren't details you necessarily need unless you know something about Egypt. Well, we understand that very likely Moses is the author of the book of Genesis, and he knows a lot about Egypt. And he includes this detail to emphasize what's going on in Joseph's world. When Pharaoh says, go get the man, you have to remember that Joseph knows nothing about all of this that's unfolding up in the palace. He has no idea what's coming. And suddenly the chains clank, and the bars of the prison door swing open, and somebody's coming in to drag him out. Now, after all that time in prison, he smells. I don't know how else to say it, but he stinks. He's disheveled. He's got a long beard. He's got tattered clothing. He looks like you would expect someone to look like if they're coming out of the dungeon. What you may not know is Egypt's rulers are very concerned about hygiene and health and personal grooming. And one thing is for sure, you do not go into Pharaoh's presence with a beard on. Moses knew that to be true. Men did not wear beards in Pharaoh's presence. So we get that detail and then we come to verse 15. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I've heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, and this verse, church, just to this day stuns me. Joseph answered and said to Pharaoh, saying, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And I want you to see why this stuns me. Just pause for a moment. I don't care if you've read this story 500 times. Take this in. It's been years since Joseph was in what we would call the real world. Consider the transition, just coming out of the dark dungeon into the setting of the palace. 
But consider with me who he is standing before. I'm going to put some images on the screen for you so that you can track with me what's going on. This is Sesotris II, king of the Middle Kingdom of the 12th dynasty of Egypt. The most powerful person on earth. If you go to the Valley of the Kings today, you will see in the Valley of the Kings statues like these that have been erected to remember the pharaohs of Egypt, and they were monumental images of these individuals. One of the images coming up on the screen is the crown, the crown of Sesotris' daughter, which was recently uncovered in one of the tombs. She wore that in the presence of Sesotris, this pharaoh. His daughter would wear this crown in the palace that Joseph served in. But those details in themselves are not as stunning as this next image that you'll see of granite. And this particular statue of granite is Sekhmet. And Sekhmet was carved into granite 730 times, one for every morning of the year and one for every evening of the year. And the people of Egypt worshipped Sekhmet because Sekhmet, she's this cat lady. She's got a cat head or a lion head and a woman's body. And it was believed by these individuals that she protected Pharaoh. She could keep away plague. She could keep away disease. She could bless you with favor. And she had the eye of Ra so that she could destroy you with a glance. So the people of Egypt believed ferociously that this was the guardian of Pharaoh. So they would bring food to her, they would dance before her, they would bow down before her, and they would whisper their prayers in the ears of their cats, so their cats would relay the prayers to the cat lady. It puts the cat lady in a whole new realm that we don't even know, right? <laughs> this is on a scale beyond what we understand. So these people worship this one who supposedly was bringing plenty and blessing upon Egypt. So into that setting, into that palace, among all the splendor stands Joseph, 30 years old, freshly showered, clean-shaven, wearing new clothes. And Pharaoh says to him, according to my sources, you're the guy with all the answers. I wonder if in this moment Joseph glances across the palace and sees the cupbearer and thinks, you're the guy who left me in the dungeon. That aside, Pharaoh brings out the question, I hear that you have the answers. Now if you have been in the dungeon, would you not be tempted to immediately say, yeah, that's right, I'm the guy. But not Joseph. He says, no, I am not the one with the answers. Verse 16, Joseph then answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me. I am so impressed with this young man. I'm not the one, but I know the God who is the source of all truth. Could you do that? Could you do that before your employer? Could you do that before your social circle? Could you do that before your family? 
I'm not the one. But I know the God who is, and He has truth. What you're looking at here is courage, raw courage, blended with pure humility, and that kind of humility is the product of walking through times of turbulence when you have seen God proven time and time and time again. See, there's not a word of blame against his brothers for selling him. There's no repudiation of Pharaoh, of of Potiphar's wife for accusing him of rape. And there's nothing said against the cupbearer. He doesn't rebuke him at all. He merely says this in verse chapter 41, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And that does not mean the interpretation will be good news. It just simply means that Pharaoh is going to understand what his dream meant. So Joseph calmly listens to Pharaoh describe his dreams, and it is a very serious matter. Go with me to verse 17. So Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, in my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile, and behold, seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Lo, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such as I had never seen for ugliness in all the land of Egypt. And the lean and ugly cows ate up the first seven fat cows. Yet when they had devoured them, it could not be detected that they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as before. Then I awoke, verse 22, I saw also in my dream, and behold, seven ears, full and good, came up on a single stalk, and lo, seven ears withered, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed the seven good ears. Then I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Now, Pharaoh recounts his dream, and he adds two major parts that we didn't get to see earlier. He says, these cows were really ugly. I've never seen anything so ugly in all the land of Egypt. But he also adds this detail that they ate the other cows, and they still looked just as ugly as before. And then dead air, and he begins to just stare at Joseph like, what do I do with this? And you hear the Jeopardy theme song playing in the background. (laughs) What is it? It's here, church. It's right there. In this moment, the reaction of Joseph is what sets apart someone who is a follower of God. Joseph sees God's fingerprints all over these events. And here is where the endurance, the product of endurance comes in. He stops all the confusion by showing and pointing others and allowing them to see God in this situation. And there's no blaming God. And if anybody could blame, it's Joseph, and he doesn't do it. Rather, what he does is he points to God as being at work because he's always at work around us. He's always accomplishing his purposes because his ways are higher than our ways. So verse 25, now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And you get the benefit thousands of years later of getting a front row seat to the theme of the sovereign rule of God. Especially comes out in verse 32. When he says the matter has been firmly decided, God's going to do this. Notice, rather than simply just saying, lucky you, Pharaoh, God's showing you what He's about to do. That's not what He's doing. That's part of what He's doing, but there's a difference. What He's stating here is assurance that when God says He's going to do something, He's going to do something. 
In other words, God is in control, and surely it will come to pass. Next time you read the book of Revelation, read it that way. Don't just read it as a window into the future. Read it as a reality that God says it's going to happen, therefore it's going to happen. Because God does not lie. So Joseph says both dreams are one and the same with one interpretation. Verse 26, the seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the thin, seven thin ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. I want you to say amen out loud if you agree with this statement. God is involved in the affairs of governments and nations. I hope you believe that because the Bible says over and over again, He is. God orchestrates the directions of governments and of nations, and He has just given a revelation to a pagan king, someone who did not have relationship with Him, and God has shown him what He's about to do. Here's the revelation, verse 29, "'Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt, and after them seven years of famine will come, and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt.'" and the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine, for it will be very severe. And the Hebrew word that's used there is vehemently heavy. It will cause people to have a weight upon them, so they they will grieve, which explains why in the dream that Pharaoh was at the Nile River, because the Nile is the lifeblood of Egypt, and they have virtually no rainfall throughout the year. So they're totally dependent upon the flooding of the Nile and the Nile Delta to bring water to irrigate the crops. So he says, Pharaoh, you're going to have seven years of really high plenty. Imagine putting it in our context today. Someone saying, the Dow is going to go to 50,000 in 2023. We're about 33,000 in the Dow right now. Can you imagine in the United States the abundance if the stock market soared because that's an indicator of what's going on in the economy? So the Dow and the NASDAQ, they're going to go off the charts. They're going to climb to heights they've never seen. But he said that's going to be immediately followed by seven years of international plague. Imagine with me if in 2013 somebody said to the leaders of the world, in March of 2020, there is going to be a devastating global plague and it will shut down the world's economy. Businesses will close, people will not go to work, hospitals will be overflowing, and people will hoard toilet paper. (laughs) Is that too soon? (laughs) Some of you all probably still have it in your house. (laughs) All the times of abundance are going to be forgotten. And here's the hilarious part to me. The famine will even affect the gods of Egypt. Here, here, this is what's funny. Osiris, Osiris who is the god of Egypt is the god of the Nile. The form Osiris takes is that of a cow, okay? It's a bull. The the other god that they worship emphatically, there's lots of them, but one that they put really right up there with Osiris is Hathor. And she's the goddess of fertility who brings plenty to the land. And she takes the form of a cow. 
So you've got the two chief gods that they worship, small g, whom God has just used in a dream and they're eating each other. And I already told you about Shechmet, the one who can keep plagues away and diseases away. So let's get theological for a moment, church. Theology meaning the study of God, theologically thinking. Who is allowing the plague in the first place? God, it's his plan. He's, He's bringing about this disaster and God orchestrates his plans. So truth, the one true God, while at the same time orchestrating his plans, is humiliating the gods, small g, of the earth. I find it funny, maybe you don't, but just hilarious to me. Okay, verse 32, now as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God and God will quickly bring it about. Now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Because Joseph has just emphasized when it happens, it's going to happen at such a quick rate, you can't stop it. This is the same language that's used in the book of Revelation when it says Jesus will come quickly. It doesn't mean like he was going to come in the first century. Quickly means that when it begins, rapid succession. That's why the tribulation is found in just a seven year span of time, but I'm getting off track here. I want to put an image on the screen for you of a beggar, and I want you to hear me read. I'm not going to put this on the screen, just the image of the beggar, and I want you to hear what I'm about to read comes from Pharaoh's diary. This was uncovered from a Pharaoh who reigned in the Middle Kingdom. We don't know if it was Sesotris II or not. Just listen to the description that comes out of his own records. I was in distress on the great throne, and those who are in the palace where there is heart affliction from a very great evil, since the Nile had not come in my time for a space of seven years. Grain was scant, fruit was dried up, and everything which they ate was short. Every man robbed his companion. They moved without going ahead. The infant was wailing. The youth was waiting. The heart of the old men was in sorrow. Their legs were bent, crouching on the ground. Their arms were folded. Joseph has just arrived from the dungeon. And he's not only forecasting what will happen to Egypt. He then goes into council mode and advises Pharaoh how to prepare That's why I'm so impressed with this 30-year-old young man. He's 17 when he was taken. Instead of calling attention to himself, he keeps pointing to God. I was stolen by my brothers. I was put in slavery. I was accused falsely of rape. I was locked away in the dungeon. He didn't say any of that. He keeps pointing to God, to the God of the Bible because Joseph's theology is rock solid. He can say to Pharaoh, it is God who has determined to do this and he will bring it to pass. Which is a great reminder for us living in 2023, church, that you follow the God, if you follow him and you're in relationship with him through the Lord Jesus Christ who died for your sins, you follow a God who can cause all things to work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose, to those who love him. That's the God that you follow, and that's what you see going on here, and Joseph understands that. God's going to carry out his purposes for Israel in Egypt. 
So here goes Joseph's counsel, verse 34. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. Let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land will not perish during the famine. Now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. And mind you, all his servants are all those advisors that he brought in. And so Joseph is speaking in front of all those experts. And he's just advised Pharaoh to appoint an economic leader. We might call him the secretary of the treasury. And then he says, you need overseers. And those overseers are going to work under the authority of the secretary of the treasury. And you need to put in place a 20% tax, and you need a man of discipline and foresight and spiritual maturity trusted to handle that kind of a job. And never once does he say, I'd like the job. I'll sign up for that. I got the qualifications. He doesn't do it even once. He doesn't say a word about his dreams, and he certainly doesn't say anything about the coat of many colors. Because he learned when he was 17, that doesn't lead to good things. He could, but he doesn't speak of it. Next verse, verse 38, then Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? And understand, this is a rhetorical question. Who could we find that matches that description? And Joseph refuses to manipulate the moment. And he simply stands there waiting because during those years as a slave and while he's been forgotten in prison, he has learned to filter his words. You're looking at the product of somebody who's gone through really hard times and he's allowing the Lord to have his way. So the Pharaoh says, I see it in Joseph. In Joseph is the Spirit of God. A pagan king can clearly see it. And my question for you this morning is, can the world that you live in see that about you? Does your employer know that the Spirit of God is in you if you are indeed a follower of Jesus Christ? Does your social circle know because of the choices that you make, because of your daily actions, do they look at you like a pagan king can look at Joseph and say, God is in that young man. So there stands Joseph, and he meets all the requirements, especially the right spirit. So the choice is very easy for Pharaoh. It goes like this in verse 39. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. So just as Potiphar and just as the warden of the prison elevated Joseph to the highest level of responsibility, Pharaoh does exactly the same thing. I'm putting you in charge of everything, Joseph. In the ancient world, this is known as the position of vizier. King Tut, King Tutmosis III wrote about this exact same position within his realm. Look with me on the screen. Look to you, this office of vizier. Be vigilant over everything that is done in it. Behold, it is the support of the entire land. That's the position Joseph has. 
And now to wrap this up, here comes the long-awaited fulfillment of Joseph's dream, which God gave him when he's 17 years old. Verse 41, Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in the garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. He had him ride in his second chariot and they proclaimed over him, bow the knee. And he set him over all the land of Egypt. Earlier this week, I had to look up the word bling to see if it's still a thing. Because, you know, words get canceled all the time, right? And sure enough, turns out people still use the word bling. So this is way more than bling. This is bling bling, okay? But this is more than just rewards going on. This is a follower of the Lord God Almighty who's just been made second in command of Egypt. And it's a hugely significant scene. There's an appointment going on and there's rewards going on. So the rewards is he gets the gold chain, he gets the new clothes, he gets the chariot, he's gonna get an Egyptian wife in a minute and he gets the name to go with it. But on top of that, a ring is being given. What you're looking at here is a twofold ceremony and it's very common in ancient Egypt. So in verses 40 and 41, Pharaoh officially appoints him and gives him his own personal ring that he takes off his hand and puts it on Joseph's hand. And with that ring, he has the power of Pharaoh over Egypt. But in verses 42 through 45, Joseph is rewarded for what he has revealed. The gold chain, though, is the most important thing in the reward ceremony. And if you go back to the ancient tombs today and you look at the wall paintings, you'll see in reward ceremonies, Pharaoh bestowing gold chains upon people that they want to reward. You won't find an Egyptian ceremony without the gold chain, which really speaks to the accuracy of Scripture. And it's being played out here in Egyptian royalty. So this signet ring, this is the authority issued by Pharaoh. The clothing, the fine linen, because he's always going to be in this position of high power. And the gold chain, that's the necklace we talked about a minute ago. And then he gets the new car. And with the new car, everybody's got to bow the knee when they see that baby coming. You know who this is. Bow the knee. And so with the sweeping of Pharaoh's hand, he says, it's just as I have spoken. It's all yours, Joseph. And he takes off the ring, which is the platinum charge card of that day. It says, your spending is unlimited. Do you not wonder what's going through Joseph's mind in that moment? He had only hours before been in the dungeon. How great is our God to keep his word. Ragged in the dungeon, now standing before the Pharaoh of Egypt. And while he rides in the chariot, people are yelling out, bow the knee. Here's how it comes to an end today, verse 44. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh named it Joseph Zaphonath-Paneah, and he gave him Asnath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. I couldn't help it, but this week my mind was just going back to Yule Brenner and the Ten Commandments saying, so let it be written, so let it be done. He even made that up, by the way. They included that in the movies. <laughs> they just thought, oh, that's cool. Well, this sounds Egyptian. Let's put it in the movie. 
Zathanath Paneah means God is the preserver of life in the Egyptian language. Joseph shall live because he follows after God is what the Pharaoh was saying. The, the emphasis is on the God of Joseph as being the preserver of life. Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. And you might be tempted to say, wow, what a great ending. They should make a movie out of that. Well, they did, but you'd be right. You'd be right in saying that is a great ending, except it's not the end. It's just beginning to unfold. Here's two things I want you to carry out the door with you for today, though. You, you notice that this one that God has blessed and used mightily is not afraid to point people to God no matter the setting. He's standing before the most powerful person on the planet, the Pharaoh of Egypt, a pagan king who's considered to be God on earth by his people, and says, you need to pay attention to what God is saying, the God. Try that next time you're credited for doing something really well. Social circle, work setting. See what kind of a response you get when you say, yeah, that's God working through me. See where that conversation goes. Here's the second thing. During the waiting period, trust God without panic. See, it's God's job to deal with the cupbearers of your life who have neglected you and forgotten about you. Your job is to be faithful during the waiting period because the sovereign God of the universe, He stays right beside us. He reminds us of His promises. Promises like this, I want you to end with. Look with me. Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. New Hope, it is absolutely crucial to remember there are no accidents with God. If he's sovereign, and he is, it is God who orchestrates all the events of our life in order to accomplish his will. He directs our steps and puts us where he wants us to be for his purposes. That morning, Joseph woke up in a dungeon, and that evening, he sleeps in a palace. Thirteen years earlier, at 17, he arrives in Egypt as a slave, and at 30, he becomes second only to Pharaoh. Let me ask you, coincidence? I think not. It's the God of the universe. God is in control at every turn. However, his sovereign plan is not yet fully revealed, but that's for next week, and the week after, and the week after that. If you are already a believer, if you're already a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, as you look at your life, can you see how the Lord has prepared you for certain responsibilities? How he has used past circumstances to shape you for where you're at right now? There's a second component to this question. How has he used those difficult circumstances to accomplish his purposes in your life? And the reason I ask you it that way is you know people who say, where's God? Where's God when children are dying in the Ukraine? 
Where's God when a 24-year-old collapses on the football field? You know people like that. And you can look at your own life and speak back into their life because you can see when you identify that important aspect of your life, you're going to be able to speak into the lives of others and say, I can point you to God. I'll tell you where God is because I've seen him at work in my life. The circumstances which happen in your life do not happen by chance as though some cosmic force has brought bad karma to you. Nor are the circumstances of your life the product of a God who has suddenly lost control of the universe. We have a relationship with the sovereign God of the universe who has the capacity to cause all things to work together for good. That's who you follow. So he is for you. He is for you. He is for you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, just like you saying, he is for you. So please remember that in the midst of all your trials, whatever you will go through this year, whatever you encounter, the lows and the highs, God has not abandoned you and he has not forgotten you. He never left. So the writer of Hebrews echoes what the Old Testament said. Look with me. Deuteronomy 31.6, he will never leave you nor forsake you, which is repeated in Hebrews 13.5. He himself has said, I will never desert you. I will never forsake you. That is only true if you are in relationship with the God of the universe through the Lord Jesus Christ who died for your sins. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're on your own. That sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? You do not have to be on your own. God will go for you. You want to know more about that? Come talk to me after the service. Go to the prayer room. Somebody was waiting to pray for you and with you. You want to know a relationship with Jesus, the God who will be there for you? You have to meet Jesus first. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for the power of your word when you cause it to come to life through the work of the Holy Spirit and how you can shape us and redirect our thinking. I pray that as we take on this week, as we take on this year, whatever comes our way, God, that we will be the first to point others toward you, what you're doing and what you're up to. And that doesn't happen easily, Father. We know, once again, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not in our own capacity. So move among us, God. Use us for the sake of your kingdom Bring edification our way and bless us for having spent time in studying your word this morning. Send your people out now with your protection and with your blessing. In Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Have a great week, New Hope.